Welcome to Mind Love, episode 313. Today's episode is all about attuning to relational energy fields for emotional regulation and trauma healing. All these defense mechanisms are our intelligence. That's not a dysfunction. It's a function that maybe we don't know anymore how to listen to. So we depathologize those parts of us, or I, can, I, have, I cannot feel my body. I could also say, as a child, I managed to pull out of my body because it was too much what I experienced. If I managed to pull out of it, I can befriend that movement and kind of relax back. So we could say, in the traumatic moment, when somebody experiences something that's strongly overwhelming and it's, we can deal with it only by shutting something down. So in that moment here in space and time, it's not good for me. For a child that gets neglected or hurt or beaten or whatever, it's not good here. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Have you ever walked into a room and just felt like the vibe was off? Maybe two people are sitting on opposite sides of the room, but you can feel the tension in the air. Or here's another scenario. Have you ever been hanging out with a friend or a family member and you can just feel the love between the two of you? We talk a lot about our own energy, but how often do you consider the energy that you co-create with other people? The first time I reflected on this, I got a little nervous. <laughs> to be honest, I'm not sure I trusted myself to create the right kind of energy on my side of that co-creation. Growing up, I was always told my emotions were too big or I was being too much, as if my feelings were some sort of inconvenient truth that just needed to be swept under the rug. I remember feeling shamed, like there was something fundamentally wrong with me. Like I had to apologize for simply feeling. But here's what I've come to realize. Our emotions are not a curse, they are a compass. They're not something to be tamed. The goal is to understand them. They guide us towards our truths and in understanding our fears and our unhealed wounds. I have two littles right now, and on one hand, I am so blessed to understand this in time for motherhood. Kids are kind of like emotional tuning forks. They pick up on everything, your mood, your energy, even those little anxieties that you think you're hiding so well. And here's the kicker. Sometimes their emotional outbursts are more a reflection of my inner world than their own. Like if my husband and I share a tense moment, it's kind of like my toddler has this sixth sense for it and decides that it's the perfect time for a living room performance of Tantrum, the musical. Their emotional stability usually mirrors my own. So if I'm off balance, there's nearly this instant manifestation of a living room meltdown. <laughs> 
But honestly, it's this level of accountability that just comes with instant feedback. So it's kind of like having this real-time emotional barometer in the form of a toddler who has also learned to say, deep breath, mom, (laughs) whenever I seem stressed. And let me tell you, nothing puts your own emotional state into perspective faster than hearing your stress cues reflected back to you by a two-year-old. Well, the harsh reality is many of us are so used to living in that state of dysregulation that we don't know what a grounded baseline looks like. Our reactionary patterns are so ingrained that we think they're personality traits. Oh, I'm just a worrier, we say, or I've always been quick to anger, as though these are hard facts instead of changeable behaviors. And here's the thing. This isn't just a personal problem. It's a collective one. You've heard the saying, No man is an island. And that's the case with our energy, too. We are never alone in our fields. We are always co-creating. The problem is, despite having more ways to connect, many people feel more alone than ever. And maybe it's because texting and social media make it easy to skip out on real face-to-face time. Sure, it's easier to send a text than to meet up, but something is missing. You can't really feel someone's mood or vibe through a screen. And here's the big question. Are we forgetting how to really connect with each other because we're always online? Could we be losing the skills to understand what someone's feeling if we're not with them in person? And if that's true, what else does that space between us hold? It's common to focus on ourselves or even just focus on other people. But what could we gain if we learn to lean into that we space? So when we talk about understanding our emotions better, it's not just for us. It's for everyone around us, too. When we're more in tune with how we feel, we can better understand others. And we can even better understand that relational energy. So today we're going to talk about how to attune our relational energy fields. Our guest is Thomas Hubel. He's a teacher, author, and international facilitator who finds the beauty and the fascination in both realms of science and mysticism. He believes that these two parts of his identity reflect his inner self, with a deep love for both the rationality of science and the mystical processes that shape our inner beings. He refers to this combination as inner science. He sees himself as the one who aims to bridge the gap between science and mysticism. So three key things we will learn are how to embrace and ground our sensitivities, how to understand defense mechanisms and the intelligence behind them, and how to use our energy to help children navigate fear and stress. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Thomas Hubel to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So what inspired your research into kind of the relationship between the mystical and scientific perspectives and reality? Yeah, both. I think it describes 
two parts of me too. I mean, the part that loves science, I love science, and uh, and the part that loves mystical science. That's why I call it inner science, uh, because I think that the the mystical process and the deeper understanding of the inner anatomy and how energies flow through us, and you know what many mystics over thousands of years researched through their contemplation and their spiritual practice. I think also has a, it's not just a random thing. It's a kind of almost a scientific process that is not so rational only, but it it has a like a path that we can follow, like scientific experiments. So I love both. And I, and I think they don't, sometimes in, in society, these two voices don't talk enough to each other. So that's why I'm, I'm one of those voices. <laughs> when did you start to put those things together? Because it's not something that we're regularly taught in school. We're taught pretty much just the science side. And so we all sort of find that mystical nature of reality on our own. So I'm curious, where was your starting point? Yeah, it's interesting. It started already, I think when I was a boy, I grew up in a village outside of Vienna. And uh, there was, of course, Catholicism was uh, the the dominant spiritual practice, but I never I, I always connected deeply to to God to the divine, but I didn't relate to the church context at least not not in general the church, but where I grew up it felt cold to me, distant. It didn't it didn't feel like a warm community space, and that's why I had already very early on my own prayer practice, my own internal practice, but I didn't have an outer community. And then when I was 19 or uh, maybe even before when I was 16 I joined the Red Cross and I became very young already like a paramedic I also became and then I studied medicine later but then I I was a trainer for paramedics and when I was did my shifts and I did lots of them while I especially while I was a student I that like kind of service because I was a volunteer I didn't get any money for it but I love doing it and I consider that also as part of my kind of spiritual evolution in a way, because I learned so much from so many different walks of life and so many things I saw. And I learned also a lot about trauma in that time. And then when I was 19, I started to meditate regularly. When I was 26, I went on to kind of a four-year meditation retreat time. So I had multiple moments where, especially when I was 26, I felt I have to be more silent for some time and study in a different way so I left my medical studies and I went to like a deep contemplative journey which was amazing not always easy but amazing for me I learned so much from within that time and then I started to do the work that I'm doing today and I and it's uh yeah it's one led to the next led to the next kind of so your work now is is focused on this idea of attunement and interdependence we've mm-hmm. explored it a little bit uh, over the podcast. I'm actually, I'm also right now deep in the study of A Course in Miracles. And when I was reading your book, I, so many of the concepts in A Course in Miracles are directly related. And so I loved just hearing more of the scientific perspective on it. Although I will say A Course in Miracles brings in a lot of psychology, but it's it's cool going into the quantum physics and like neuropsychology. So Tell me what the what the big idea is in your book, Attuned. What are you claiming? I'm claiming that on the one hand, something very simple. I feel, of course, myself, but I feel you when I talk to you, and I feel how you feel me. That simple, seemingly simple process, I feel you and I feel how you feel me, 
I think is a very fundamental and powerful process. It's like every child with their parents grows up within that relational data flow or within the absence or the kind of overwhelm within that relational data flow. And so for many of us, when we begin to pay attention to how attuned we actually are, we find out that there are many moments, especially the difficult moments where we are not attuned at all because we are kind of busy with processes in ourselves. So, and so the first thing is that I feel you in neuroscience, we call it neuroception, is that the nervous system and it's felt registers that consciously or unconsciously as safety. So when we feel each other, we already create safer spaces. When parents are attuned to the children, the child feels safer. When we are less attuned, it creates already a little bit of stress in the child. And attunement is the basis of co-regulation. I often bring this example when my daughter comes to me and says, Daddy, Daddy, I'm scared. And if I'm busy and I don't have really time, I say, don't, don't be scared. There is no nothing dangerous. But when I do that, I... I devalue the emotion of my daughter. I don't really connect to her emotions and I give her a rational answer and actually she has an emotional need. The other intervention would be I turn to her and say, yes, I feel you as scared. Come to me, come. I embrace her, I hug her, I like I bring her closer. I feel her fear. My nervous system connects to her nervous system. We create relational resonance, emotional resonance. And then I say, okay, let's have a look what happened. So then I bring rational leadership once I met the emotional experience. And that's a whole different experience for her because she can, in a way, discharge her fear with me together and ground herself again. And I think that's a simple thing, but for many of us, that's not that normal. Even in leadership in organizations later, that's not so normal that when somebody is stressed, that we really take the time a few minutes and really we are with that person in a deeper way. So all of that is attunement. And the reason why we talk about it is because I think we are living in a systemically traumatized world where trauma impaired relationships, attunement capacities, because when we are hurt, we can't really feel ourselves, feel other people properly. And that's why I think it's such an important remedy to heal ourselves systemically. So that's a little bit in a nutshell. And of course, we can talk more about the science behind it or whatever, but that's the reason. So I was reading your book and I happened to have my four-month-old on my lap. <laughs> and so mm, it's wow. funny because he started to be a little bit fussy. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a four-month-old. Oh, congratulations. And a part of it, you told the story about really just connecting to that baby and being in the presence. And so I just stopped reading and I sat there with him. He was a little bit fussy and I just made my whole intention to just connect with him, to like focus on the space between us, the space, the interrelational space that we were creating. And he totally mm -hmm. calmed down. And mm -hmm. it's funny because I study things like this. I also study traditional like child development books. I'm a new mom, you know, I feel like I have to. <laughs> so uh, I, with my toddler, He's at that age where he throws a lot of irrational fits, bless his little heart. <laughs> and um, and it's funny because it does, you do sort of quickly want to be like, it's fine, you're okay, you know, but I know that I want to meet him at his, at his level. And I will be honest, it's been a series of trial and error because nobody has told me yet until your little example right there about <laughs> maybe what exactly to say. Although I've, I've heard things like, okay, I see you're upset and I, I try to connect him. 
but I really liked your wording of, I feel that you're upset or I feel that you're scared because that's one of the things I want to make sure I pass down to my child. I had cut off feeling in my body at a pretty young age due to my own trauma. I ended up being heavily bulimic for like a decade. I was prescribed Adderall for a decade. All of these things that really just cut off any awareness uh, from my body. And so my healing has been reconnecting with that. It's something I still have to work on. And so just that little word choice of I feel that you're scared brought me into my body while you were telling that story. And so I love that word choice, first of all. But tell me a little bit about the science behind this, because I know there's going to be half the audience that's like, yes, I know this. I know that this is real. Other, other half is like, okay, this sounds a little woo-woo. So let's talk about the science. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small. And when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot MindLove. Tell me a little bit about the science behind this, because I know there's going to be half the audience that's like, yes, I know this. I know that this is real. Other, other half is like, OK, this sounds a little woo woo. So let's talk about the science. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's not woo woo at all, because first of all, like a friend of mine, uh, Christina Bettel, she's a professor at the Johns Hopkins University, and we were working closely together and she has all the science. She's behind she one major person behind the ACES study. Many people know ACES, Adverse Childhood Experience Score. 
So we there is first of all there is already a lot of science of that says adversity during our childhood and calls for more health issues later when we are grown ups or later in our life. So there is a, a proven correlation. There are lots of studies have been done, but she also researches what she called calls pieces like positive childhood experiences, and she correlates when somebody goes through an adverse situation but has a very positive relational experience, it reduces the after effect of trauma by a lot. So that's one thing. The other thing is she's heavily involved, even in policymaking in certain states in the, in the United States, that relational health is actually something that's now coming much more into the healthcare system to doctors, pediatricians, like, that, that how we relate to our patients and clients, uh, that's in the professional context, but it's true for everybody, makes a huge difference. So there's more and more a whole field, relational health, <clears throat> that, that is being researched. And you can, you can show a lot of positive effects in the way we place our attention, we feel each other, we attune to each other, has a tremendous impact. And just what I said before, Neuroception, I feel you, creates safety. Because when somebody feels us, they can't hurt us. We only hurt each other when we are hurt already and we don't feel the other person. And then in the gap between us, re-traumatizations happen. But when we are attuned, when we feel each other, there is we can't really hurt each other. And our nervous system knows that. So when the social fabric is healthy, we all feel safer with each other. And even this long-term Harvard study, you know, what, are, what is health? What is health based on? The number one factor was relationship. That when we feel better, it's not genetics. It's not a, it's the way that we have meaningful relationship throughout our life, literally are a major uh, driver for health or a contribution to living a healthier life. And so we, we know from neuroscience that nervous systems or Steve Porges, the neuroscientist that developed the polyvagal theory says that he discovered that the vagal nerve that, in, that is part of the parasympathetic nervous system, the nervous system that's relaxing us, that kind of starts when we digest life and we digest our food, when we relax with each other. And we come into like a social engagement zone. So that's where we are really social with each other. The frontal part of the vagal nervous system runs through the area of our heart. So when, when that's active, we are relaxed and we say, oh, we have an open heart. Many people say, oh, my heart's open. What that means is that the vagal nervous system is, is activated. And that's why we feel more relaxed and we can hold each other. And that's how children... I always say a child has a USB plug and the parent is the plug. So like we, we plug into each other and the child can connect its nervous system with the grown-up mature nervous system, co-regulate and learn its own regulation. Regulation means I'm stressed, I'm relaxed. I'm stressed, I can relax myself. I'm stressed, I can relax myself and go to sleep. When people can't sleep at night, and they have sleep issues, it's often because they can't relax their nervous system to go into a state that is kind of a regenerative and recuperating sleep state. And so that plug-in 
for small children is totally important because they don't have the capacity yet to regulate fear or stress themselves. They need the parents for that. And so the parental nervous system teaches, in a way, the child's nervous system to integrate and internalize regulation. And the older the child becomes, it feels, first of all, when I'm afraid, I can reconnect to my parents. So fear leads me to safety. Safety teaches me that the world's a safe place. And then I can go out and become curious. So children, you see children, they go out, they come back. They go out, they come back. There's curiosity, fear, curiosity, fear. Later on, it becomes courage and safety, courage and safety. And so there are lots of studies and the whole polyvagal theory has been researched a lot. That's, and we know how when we feel that somebody is with us, when we are upset, when we are scared, when we run into life issues, how calming it can be, how much it brings us back to a place where we can think differently, feel into the situation. So yeah, there's a lot of science around relational health. I have found myself trying to do this with my toddler and there are moments where it works so beautifully. We're one-on-one -on -one there. I'm, And instead of being so focused on what I'm trying to change him into, the whole practice becomes just trying to ground my energy. But it's funny because there are some times where I'm like, okay, how do I do get that connection? Because he's already too frantic. So I'm just squeezing him. I'm like, connect with me. Yeah, right. <laughs> Doesn't work. Doesn't work super well. Like, just let me squeeze you and feel how calm I am. <laughs> right. Right. And and if I if I may, you, you said you said something really important. I think that's really important for parents. You said I'm trying to change his state, or I can say I want to feel his stress. Because when you try to change his state, you're actually not fully with him. You want to get him to a different place. And when you're with him, and you say, yes, I feel you're stressed. I feel you're stressed. And it's okay. It's okay to be stressed, and I'm here. And that is click. It's like there's no push onto his nervous system to change but there's a relationship that allows him to change that's a very important thing that you said right now i think that's i think also for everybody who hears that that's that's the that's the essence are we willing to feel somebody else's stress and then we can co-regulate with each other i think the challenge for a lot of people becomes that a lot of people were like i was in my 20s completely cut off from their own feelings and we tend to think we're hurt when we're actually angry or vice versa. And it all just comes down to something deeper that we're not willing to look at or we feel something too strongly. So we numb it out or we distract ourselves. We all think we have ADD when really maybe it's just ourselves just trying to tune out from everything and just being easily distracted. And so a core concept of all of this becomes really developing that inner awareness so that we're first able to regulate ourselves so that then we, when we do become attuned with other people or with our environment, we are first grounded. So where do we start with that? Because I have been actively researching this for years. And while it's something that I've come a long way in, I don't think it would have happened naturally without that conscious effort. So where do we start? Yeah, first of all, I love to hear you speak about it because you speak so beautifully and authentically about your own journey. I think that's already a result of your journey. 
And uh, and so that's lovely, that touches me. And and I think it's also already the message. It's it's how I often say, how do we first notice that sometimes our words don't match our inner experience? So I say A, like how many people use it? How are you? Good? <laughs> Fine. You know, it's like a disembodied information that has no value at all because often we don't say what we feel, but we're saying something. So the word and the energy, the real experience of the person are not the same. So, and that's not good or bad because wherever we are hurt, you said you had earlier trauma in your trauma in your own life. So of course, when we are hurt, we need to shut down a part. So first we need to recognize that all these defense mechanisms are our intelligence. That's not a dysfunction. It's a function that maybe we don't know anymore how to listen to. I would say that's the more precise framing. So we depathologize those parts of us. Or I, can, I, have, I cannot feel my body. I could also say, as a child, I managed to pull out of my body because it was too much what I experienced. So I could either say I cannot feel it, or I, I can say I managed to pull out of it. If I manage to pull out of it, I can befriend that movement and kind of relax back. Or another example is some people struggle. They want to be present, but they kind of feel distracted. And so we could say in the traumatic moment, when somebody experiences something that's strongly overwhelming, and it's, we can deal with it only by shutting something down. So in that moment here, in space and time, it's not good for me. For a child that gets neglected or hurt or beaten or whatever, it's not good here. So not being present is more intelligent than staying present with that overwhelm. I think that's very important to understand because even in the mindfulness community or like when we want to be more present as parents or as leaders or as therapists, it seems like it sometimes connected to some kind of effort when in fact the, the intelligence that is not present, not here in space and in time, actually has something to say. That was at a certain time in our life an intelligent movement. So it's not stupid. It's also not a, a dysfunction or limitation. It's something I need to get to know. And as you said, usually these things just don't happen by themselves. We need to volunteer and, and begin to be curious about these processes and often have a kind of a community or other people that are like-minded. And then we create small ecosystems of growth, of change, of healing, of integration. And, and that's the space where we can explore it. I'm sure you explored a lot of your own inner, inner experience and that helped you to slowly ground yourself. And when we say grounded, we say, I feel my body. I can identify the emotions that come up. And I say, it's a difficult experience. I had a difficult meeting. Or I can say, I don't, I take the word difficult off and I describe my experience as much as I can. Then I can say, I had a team meeting, somebody said something and I felt ashamed in front of everybody. What we say is, it was a difficult meeting, but what we can say is, I felt ashamed and then I create immediately more intimacy with my shame or I was afraid or whatever. I got angry and, but I'm closer to the building block of my experience. 
And then I create more connection to my emotions and I get to know them. And then we see that sometimes we say, I feel, but actually what we are saying is thoughts. I feel that this and this and this, whatever, X, Y, Z. And we say, no, feeling is I feel afraid. I feel my body. I feel a situation. I feel a circumstance. Or I feel my child. But once I say I feel that, usually I'm thinking about something. And when I notice that that's not good or bad, it's just that it helps me to see, oh, what am I actually really feeling? And then I can go back to my body and I get to know my inner world more. And then, of course, tools like contemplation, meditation, body work, doing yoga, doing other things can help facilitate that. And maybe doing some trauma work or something that helps me to integrate my disembodiment. But I think it often starts with depathologizing that people don't have strengths and weaknesses. We have childhood heroes that we sometimes don't understand. And that's why we feel limited in some areas of our life. And I think if we reframe this also, that also ecosystemically in our society, then we create a different approach to ourselves. And I think that because some people say, okay, I'm, I have to look at some weakness or some part of me that I don't like versus I want to explore the intelligence, why that actually served me at an earlier time in my life. And that helps us maybe to go deeper. I had so many aha moments while you were talking. So often we do use that language. I feel like you're not listening to me. When really it's like, <laughs> I, f I feel frustrated because I don't feel as though I'm being heard or something like that. Like exactly. even that just kind of turns you in. Whereas mm -hmm. so much of what we feel in the way that we speak it, we're putting blame on somebody else for creating some external circumstance mm -hmm. rather than taking responsibility for our internal circumstance mm -hmm. and voicing that. Even, even if it's just to ourselves, we don't have to go vomit our emotions all over anyone who's unwilling. <laughs> Hopefully you right. end up being in a <laughs> partnership where you do want to kind of work on those things together, but just that inner awareness, because if it's only like, I feel like you are doing this, we have no power to change that. We have no power to really get that very curious about that. And the more that we're curious about that external thing, the more we feel this need or this drive to change an external circumstance when that's kind of a waste of our power because we're just giving it away mm -hmm. to everyone else versus really getting in tune with that deeper emotion. Like I said earlier, a lot of times we think it's the surface level thing when it's something deeper than that. It's like, okay, well, why do I feel frustrated in this environment when the person next to me doesn't seem to be, you know, like what is going on inside of me? And then once we get in tune with that, rather than being like, oh, well, I must not be strong here, or I must have some fatal flaw. It's really just well, what is this trying to speak to me? How is this trying to speak to me? Whether it's a past trauma that we can get curious about or whether it's something that we just need to feel and release in a different way, which actually brings me to another question. You say in your book that an internal conflict or a polarization of emotions, beliefs, or ideas cannot be solved from the level of restriction. Can you explain that? I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning 
It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. An internal conflict or a polarization of emotions, beliefs, or ideas cannot be solved from the level of restriction. Can you explain that? Yeah. So let's say, like an example. First of all, I loved everything you said before about taking self-responsibility. I think that's so true and we cannot say often enough. Like, Like one thing to that is like the basic rule I would say is when triggered, speak about yourself. I think if you can just remember that when I get triggered by my partner, speak about how you feel, not what your partner is doing. And that like that sound that was very important, I think what you said. And that helps me to get to know myself deeper. But let's say the conflict. We can say, for example, like children that take on responsibility in the family system too early. Let's say there's a parent that is chronically regressed again and again and again. So when the child becomes older than the than the parental regression, the child actually becomes the one who takes care of the parent. So we see this when people have lots of intimate relationship conflicts, the children kind of pull themselves into a mediation role. They try to make it good between the parents, but that means already that the child has a lot of fear and tries to keep the container safer and does something that the parent's supposed to be doing. They're supposed to solve their relationship issues, not the child for the parents. Or that you have marriages where, or when people get divorced, that that parents speak about the other parent with the child in a way that creates a loyalty conflict in the child. So the child's supposed to be free of that because mature parents can solve their relationship. And even when they're separate, they can do it in a way that the children feel safe and held. And the parents are mature enough to organize that, to do that. But often when when people split up, they're also regressed and triggered. So they can't do that. And channeling that energy through their children creates a conflict. So later on, that person comes into a relationship themselves. And 
and express it like it shows up as a symptom in the way we relate to our intimate partner today. So that conflict actually needs first, that first we see it just through symptoms, but when we work on it deeper, we come to the place where the child needed to take a decision and that's a strong internal conflict. It comes with attention, it comes with kind of a lot of emotional charge. So creating first the space that that's not something we can do with our partner. We cannot resolve this with our partner. We need to go to somebody that knows how to hold space for us, like a therapist or a trauma therapist, and then create an environment where we can let that conflict be, create enough space, and then let the internal conflict evolve into something new. And that usually happens because the therapist is supposed to replace for some time the mature parent that was missing to give the nervous system of the client a chance to get the vitamin that was missing in order to, to release stagnation into new movement. And that's a very powerful and beautiful process, but we, we do need people that can help us with that. But if I stay, if I try this too long alone, I actually get stuck, I get more frustrated and we have more relationship issues and then it's, it escalates in the relationship when in fact what we need is to resolve that internal conflict and then conflicting energy creates stagnation or tension and it, it needs like a bigger space that helps us to evolve it into a new level. And that's why we often say also that relationships cannot be fixed. Nobody can fix a relationship that is stuck. We can only create development in the two partners and then develop a new relationship on a higher level of development. And that's also the purpose of that relationship is to help us to develop because our partner mirrors something that we can see on our own. And maybe something <laughs> that sounds a bit funny, but in a way, I think it really is like that, that the relationship or the marriage is the process where we find out what we didn't see in the first moment. You know, mm -hmm. often we are then surprised by, wow, I didn't, I didn't see this in my partner. I seen that in my partner, but that was there in the first moment too, but we just weren't attuned enough to see it and to feel it. And so then it seems like we are surprised, but it, the relationship helps us to see what we can see. And since we all carry some kind of trauma, that's not the stigma or something that shouldn't be. I mean, sometimes the relationships are so dysfunctional, they need to be ended because they're too painful. But for many people, the relationship issues are the driving force of their evolution. So it's important. I am very blessed to have a marriage where we both like to study these things. I will say mm -hmm. I go a little bit more intensely than he does, depending on <laughs> the phase, but this is what I do. But I can go to him and share things that I've learned and we can integrate it into our relationship. Whereas past relationships, quite often, it's like, especially if something was my idea, they were resistant of it because I wasn't going to be the one to fix the problem, you know, something. And yeah. it's probably how I knew they weren't the right person for me. However, I know that there's a lot of people that do have that passion for self-development or that interest there. And it's frustrating because a lot of people don't have, have that interest. A lot of people don't even really have the belief that something can be changed. And so 
despite my best intentions, there are still relationships in my life where it's difficult to evolve together because I feel as though I'm the one evolving and the other person doesn't even believe that they can. What can be done in those situations to, is there a way to individually to have one person be sort of pushing the evolution of that relationship? Does it need to be an agreement with both people? Can I just work on my energy and it still have a positive effect on the other person? What can be done there? All of it. I think you said it already. Like all of the things you said, I think are true at times. So for sure, you feel a strong drive. So that's that's part of your nature. That's part of your soul. That's part of who you are. And, and it's unstoppable, it seems, which is good. Because I think once we're on the journey and we see how beneficial is the development, so of course it will continue. And we even have more energy, the more we heal, the more energy we have for it. And But, the, but we are not alone. Even an intimate relationship is an ecosystem. So when you change... Some of the behavior contracts that you have with your intimate partner are changing too. So, and some of the unconscious parts in you, when they turn to become conscious parts, that unconscious agreement with your partner drops away on your end. So that immediately creates like a developmental impulse in the relationship. So every one of us, it doesn't matter if it's in family systems, in companies and organizations, if it's in society, everybody who evolves or develops becomes a developmental impulse in the system because we are not separate. We often see ourselves, especially in the West, we think of ourselves like hyper-individualized, but we are always interdependent with the ecosystem. So when you change, there is definitely already an impact no matter if that's visible or not. And the second thing is, I think our development, of course, gives us more capacity to relate, to hold space, to be there. So our capacity also grows to maybe see and feel the other person in their stagnation, maybe also in the fear. I think what often happens if one partner develops and the other partner doesn't do any work, the development of the one person scares the other person more and more because they feel it's kind of something's not working anymore like before and it can be really scary. So if I am aware of that, that my partner becomes tighter, but actually they become more scared because I become more open, fluid, moving, creative, and so on, that's scary. And sometimes to hold that awareness for the other like the, to feel the other person in what's getting tighter can be a beginning of a shift of a movement so that the system actually becomes aware of that and i'm part of the system too and my partner or my family whoever and the other thing is it's also true that if somebody is for a long time not making a step i often call this the rubber band effect so there's a rubber band between us and and if one person goes very far, it creates more pressure. But if the person goes too far, then we can't anymore stay in the same system. So certain relationships will inevitably fall apart after some time if because we are not any we are so far apart already that we are not anymore on the same wavelength than when we met. So there, I think all of these are true. I mean, you mentioned all of those, but they, I think they're all true and they apply in different relationships at different times. And But the, the, the beautiful thing is everybody who develops also 
becomes an evolutionary impulse in the system that they are part of. So we are co-evolving, which is not always comfortable, but uh, necessary. That sometimes the, the change of one person becomes the discomfort of the other person because the person feels more their own stagnation, their own holding, their own tension. And, and that's needed. We can't not have that. So um, I think all of what you said is true. I can see that reflected in different relationships I've had. When I was first really diving into my own growth, two of my best friendships at that time ended up falling away. And it was odd. One of them, one of them I knew <laughs> probably should have fell away a, a while before, but the other one, it was like there was just this energetic dissonance is what I called it back then before I even really understood that. And so it naturally sort of just dissolved and it is what it is still difficult at times. I, I realize I'm one that has a hard time with loss where some people are like, Oh, that friendship just fell away. I, I will spend like the next seven years thinking about, well, I could have done this better. I think it was supposed to happen. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, <laughs> and right. So that's something right. I'm working on now, but we are so connected and you gave this example or you actually talked about something that you called after time. And it's something I want to talk about because we've all experienced it. We get in an argument at breakfast and then it's like the rest of our day, our mind is still stuck in that moment. And we have a hard time connecting with the present moment. We have a hard time thinking about anything other than what we should have said. We repeat it in our mind a thousand times. <laughs> so what's, what's happening in, in that yeah. situation? And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. And we have a hard time connecting with the present moment. We have a hard time thinking about anything other than what we should have said. We repeat it in our mind a thousand times. <laughs> so what's, what's happening in, in that yeah. situation? Yeah, for this, we need to open a bit the frame to understand it. 
of course, I think we all know those moments. I mean, that's so universal that we all can relate some moments to that. And um, I often say that presence is integrated life, integrated history, like all the ancestors that led up to you and that led up to me actually lead to this conversation. So everything that's integrated in our biography, but also in our ancestors before, and so is, is having this conversation because you didn't develop a liver, I didn't either. You didn't develop anger, I didn't either. But we all live in the development of millions of years of life. So, so we are, so integrated life is what's flowing here. Unintegrated life, like I, Often I say trauma splits of information. The overwhelm needs to be shut down. But in that shutdown place, the overwhelm is still living. So when we get triggered, we get reminded of the stuff that we put away. And if we don't integrate it, it will come up periodically through situations, people, experiences. And so that data package is the past. I think that's the past, not history, unintegrated history. So if you look in the US, the tremendous amount of pain through racism or like a Native American genocide, immigration, I don't know, in Germany, the Holocaust, the Second World War, these are massive amounts of energy that couldn't be integrated. And in many people, it looks like it's individual symptoms, individual triggers, but I think it's actually much more, it's kind of a systemic process. And so we all walk around with these kind of buttons that you can press and trigger. And then data shows up, emotions, fears, anger, whatever, upset, sadness, or shame. And when, when we have that argument, then we are kind of painfully reminded of the data that's still circulating in us, often unconsciously that in those moments come up. So that's why often I say we also supervise lots of therapists or coaches and consultants. When We often say when you walk away from a one-on-one -on -one session or when you run a group, when you walk away and you feel that you're still thinking about it afterwards because it doesn't feel fully sound, that information is important for you. That needs a supervision. Why? Because we know when we look at that data that something couldn't integrate itself is the development of the therapist, is the development of their clients. Mm. So that's very powerful because then it seems says, oh, that's not a mistake, but it needs to be looked at. We can't just ignore it and recreate it two weeks later with another client. So we are, we are committed to a continuous growth when we work with clients because that is actually what improves our work all the time. And for intimate relationships, we also know this, like a data package that we take with us, but then we can't be present when we go to work, when we, it comes back again and again. And so that's information that needs a certain time that we call after time, that it needs to integrate that information back into the experience. And in the Eastern traditions, we call this karma. It's postponed experience. So, it, And if that's a conversation, maybe it takes me an hour to really feel into it and say, oh, in the morning we had an argument, I got scared. And then instead of feeling my fear, I'm just ruminating and I'm just thinking about it all the time. But actually I got scared. In the moment I noticed that I got scared and stressed when I had an argument with my partner in the morning, then I can go into my body. I can say, yes, I'm afraid. 
I'm stressed. I will put the tension there, ground it slowly. Or maybe if I need to, if it's too strong, then I need somebody to talk to. And then I notice, oh, when my fear and my stress relax, my mind relaxes. So I stop thinking about it all the time because I go to the source, to the root. And so we learn to, if I see that something is working longer than needed, then I look inside myself, I look at my body, oh, I feel a bit tight, I feel stress. I say, okay, I'm stressed. I feel the stress sensations. If I can, I ground it in my body. Say, oh, I got scared. I feel the fear. Ground it slowly. Give it a minute. Even sometimes saying, yes, I feel scared. And it's okay. Like just this simplicity of saying yes. And then I feel, okay, I'm, I'm, I begin to deal with the real fuel. I often say the emotions are the fuel. The thoughts are the symptom of the fuel. That's the movement. But what really drives the movement is stress and emotional energy that I don't feel or don't integrate. And so then I can reduce the time it takes me to be unpresent or to be thinking while I do other things. And I can come back into the, the situation. And if it's really strong and it touches very deep things, of course, I need to take it to a professional or to somebody who can help me to work this on a deeper level. Yeah, but that's the, the principle of after time. It's the time it takes to integrate the unintegrated data in order to become present again, to be really with what we experience. So what I'm hearing is that in order to basically process our karma of the day, that after time is spent more so getting in touch with the actual body sensations that we're feeling, not adding to the story that we believe made us feel that way. Exactly. Beautiful. Yes, that's right. One thing that has been coming up a lot in the last year, I found that in my growth, oftentimes labels are helpful until they aren't. So I've gone through a variety of labels, ADD, <laughs> empath, all sorts of things. And it helps for a while because it identifies, oh, okay, this is something that I'm experiencing. But I found with each one of them that the longer I stay there, it more becomes some sort of crutch or an excuse and versus a way to move beyond it. And one thing that I've become very aware of with the label of empath. I even created a whole TikTok account sharing what it, being an empath was. And then it's like the more I studied it, the more I was like, okay, something doesn't feel right. And what I came to the conclusion of was exactly a sentence that you wrote in your book where you said that being an empath is usually not high sensitivity, but a lack of groundedness and embodiment that causes overwhelm. And I realized it like came to me <laughs> one day when I was like, oh, I'm an empath. I can, And I was using it as sort of a superpower to feel things, but it would, it would still overwhelm me even with the practices. And and I started to realize, wait, maybe I just don't have a very regulated emotional <laughs> emotional boundaries. And so I've since dropped that. I, I know that I have, I can be very empathic, but I, I no longer identify as an empath because it became something more that I needed to figure out how to strengthen rather than just sort of fall into and be like, oh, I guess I'm just going to float with whatever energies <laughs> go by me. So this comes back to these practices, though, like these are the practices that help to build up or strengthen our groundedness. First of all, it's beautiful what you're saying, because, of course, like that you feel a lot and that you're sensitive is beautiful. 
Like, and, and of course, there's an empathic quality and some of us, you know, that feel that our nervous system is very refined. That's, that is a superpower. And many of us that use this to work with patients, clients, whatever, to be a teacher, to apply it with our kids, to, it's a blessing. So let's say there are some people that have a higher sensitivity and some others have other skills. They don't need this for their life journey. And so it's not, if it's good or bad, it's okay. If it's given to me by life, it's supposed to be here. It's part of who I am. It's part of my intelligence. And then, but what often happens is, is that, that people feel overwhelmed and then they say they are overwhelmed because they're highly sensitive. And that's where I would say, let's examine that if that's really true or if there's a beautiful tree with a big crown a trunk but short roots so whenever the wind comes the the big crown doesn't have a good anchor to ground the information in the body so when we have early attachment trauma and we are sensitive then often the the either the high level of stress that's in the system plus the the tension in the body creates already a precondition that the energy the, that runs through our body, the data that runs through our body can ground itself in the body and in the ground, like a lightning rod that can't ground the lightning. So then it gets stuck somewhere in the body and it feels like overwhelmed. And then people say, yeah, but I'm sensitive. That's why I'm always overwhelmed. And then it becomes a myth. And then actually the suffering gets prolonged because we don't look at the real thing why your gift should be a burden. If life gave you that sensitivity, it should be your blessing. So let's work on how to turn your gift into a blessing so that you don't suffer, that you learn the regulation you need, that you can regulate yourself in your social ecosystem well, and, and that you can ground your experience. And then high sensitivity is amazing because we can feel things with our with people around us, and especially if you use it professionally, we can feel things with our clients that are amazing. Before for that, we need that gift. It's often many people that deal with healing have also a refined nervous system because that's their instrument and it's beautiful. And that's why what you said right now, I'm happy that you came to the same conclusion because it's so important. And then we can work on how to be more grounded so that the nervous system is held more in the body and the physical body experience and that helps us to feel still the same amount but to have more base uh, more like a house that has a good foundation or a tree that has big roots even if the storms there doesn't matter really and uh, yeah i think that's very important so you've given us a beautiful practice of getting in tune with that groundedness within ourselves but you also have a practice around creating we space that I feel like could be really helpful in that more interrelational relationships. <laughs> so can you walk us through how to create we space? Yeah, it's um, first of all, I think for all of us, because most of us are not sitting in a Tibetan cave alone for a month. So we are here, we're listening to your podcast and we are in society, we're using the facilities and the whole you know, amazing parts of our society. So we are constantly in relationships. And I think since we are not walking the path of a monastery or a cave or a sadhu in India that kind of practice that way. So we need 
we spaces, I think, to have spaces where we can go deeper, where we can explore life deeper, where we can also be mirrors for each other, where we can also be presencing spaces for each other's pain and heal together. So there are many, many, many positive qualities. And I think for most of the people, having functional we spaces is a tremendous um, part of their inner development journey. So I think there's, there are lots of good things about it. And the principle that it's based on is I can attune to you. So I feel you and you feel maybe me and that creates a relational data flow. The same is for groups. In we spaces, we simply feel each other as a group. I have a social sensing organ, like how what's the atmosphere between people, how connected people are, how present we are with each other. So this is something I can feel. And when we look at it, from the perspective of our nervous system, I can say when I feel you, there is Melissa in Thomas's nervous system. In me, your perception. The Melissa that I see is not over there, but is in here. Of course, you're wherever you are, but the one that I see is in my perception. The one that I feel is in my senses. And so, and the same is with Thomas in you. So we could say, we are a particle in our body, we are matter in our body, but we are energy, like data, flow, and brain waves in everybody who knows us. So we are actually both. We are a particle and we are a wave. And, and in groups, it's the same. When we sit in a group, let's say with, there are many people in a room, if we pay attention to feel each other, everybody exists in everybody else too. And we pay a lot of attention to the groups are not just many people in a room, but that we feel each other in a room and that creates a we space quality. And then the more we get to know each other, the more we share or more vulnerable things with each other, that dimension just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And I have been working with groups for more than 20 years, also with some very large groups. And, and I have seen moments where there are many people in a room, one person shares something and everybody's there. Like you could, you could hear a pin drop because when somebody shares something really authentic or deep, many people also notice that it lives in themselves too. Like, because we are not so unique in our issues. Uh, often I ask in the groups, okay, who else knows the same topic? And then many, many people raise their hands. So, and, but that collective presencing is, I think, a tremendous healing tool. So I love to do the individual work in groups. So we do a lot of individual work in when many people presence it and then we do breakout groups and then we come together and we look again with a few people deeper and the amount of closeness and intimacy and presence that happens in the groups is amazing and i think we can see this like a, a guitar like how, why does a guitar produce music because there's a string and there's a resonance body and hundreds of people or thousands of people are listening that's the resonance body. When a person speaks, that's the string. And producing music needs both. It needs the sharing, it's generous, and the listening is generous. And together it creates music. And, and I think that's, I actually think that we need more of those collective healing spaces because it will speed up healing by far. I have many, many therapists on our teams when we do these large groups, we have large therapist teams. And 
And many of them say that when they are in the groups, what normally takes four or five psychotherapy sessions takes 20 minutes when we are in this group field, when we are in a V space after a few days. It's amazing how much faster certain integration processes go or work than when it happens in a one-on-one context somewhere. So uh, yeah, I think that's very powerful. I'm reminded of two things. Dan Siegel has a book called Intraconnected. He, uh, we talked about it in episode uh, 282. And he talks about that so often we just think of ourselves as like we think of ourselves and the other person as a relationship. But with all of us, there's this intraconnection. And this, there was a piece of understanding that I got just a few episodes later. Earlier, episode 276, we talked about this philosophy called the headless way. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah and when you were saying how when you and I are speaking, we have this combined nervous system. And it just reminded me of I was doing all of the headless way practices where I'm like, okay, I'm used to see, thinking of myself as like, okay, I'm looking out of these eyes, I'm confined in this body, and I'm just seeing everything. But what if we walk through life realizing that our perception is creating our self, or even our sense of self comes from everything that we witness. And so instead of seeing myself as just this person looking out of these eyes, I am everything in my awareness. You are a part of me in this moment, because you're a part of my perception. And so uh things clicked when I was studying the headless way, when I saw the, who was it? Edward, Edward something had a self portrait and it wasn't a picture of him like looking in the mirror. It was a picture of what he could see from his current view, where he could see the window and his legs coming out from under him propped up on the ottoman. And so it is just an opportunity or an invitation to question individual perception, your idea of self. It's like, do you is it serving you even to just think of yourself as this little soul combined in a body all alone walking through the world, you against the world? Or can you expand your ideas to that we might just be so much more than that? We, we're a wave in the ocean. So are you going to be terrified that you're surrounded by a billion other waves? Or are you going to think, I'm actually a part of this ocean and this ocean how empowering is that knowing that, yeah, I'm this wave, but I'm a part of the big ocean. And that that's really what so much of this connection, that's the visual that it comes to mind. So you have a, a ton of amazing practices in your book to, to develop a deeper sense of attunement, both individually and collectively. And you're right. There's so much division right now that this just might be the, the thing that <laughs> helps to evolve uh, the planet or deepen the connection of everybody, something to finally heal the division. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about your work and your book, Attuned, where's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, the book Attuned can be found on Amazon and every major, I think, bookstore. Uh, and more about our work, thomashubel.com thomashubel.com is my main website and I think there you can see anything or most of the things we do we also um, in the collective trauma work uh, uh, my wife and I created an NGO it's called the pocket project the pocketproject.org is our NGO where we do global collective trauma work and we do lots of relief work in different areas, including climate change, Ukraine conflict, other big issues that are in the world right now. And so, yes, we 
have also a big summit coming up, uh, the collectivedramasummit.com. We have every year around 100,000 people participate. We have amazing speakers. I mean, Dan Siegel, I appreciate him very much. We talk every every year at the summit, we have our conversation with Dan and, and other people, other great speakers, and it's very diverse, many backgrounds. It's a global speaker and listener audience. So everybody who feels drawn to learn more about this interdisciplinary approach uh, is welcome. And yeah, so maybe that uh, there's much more, but maybe that's good for now. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 313. Your challenge for this week is to find that we space. You can either do it with someone who knows you're doing this, (laughs) or you can just practice on your own secretly. Just focus on the space and the energy between you and another person, the energy that you're co-creating together. See if you can tune in and pick up anything. I mentioned how I do this with my baby, and I used to do it with my dog as well. There's something about the little beings that can't communicate in the same ways that you do. So you have to default to something different. So while this skill might come a little more intuitively with dogs or babies or even toddlers, that same space exists between anyone. Have you ever noticed when you're sharing a really romantic moment with your partner, you can feel that energy. It's like this warm, thicker airspace or with somebody that you have a love rush for, or when you and a friend are just laughing so hard and you can just feel your connection. Start to focus on that. The more you bring awareness to that space, the more information it will hold for you. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you love this episode, take a screenshot and share it on Instagram and tag mindlovemelissa and mindlovepodcast. If you want to go deeper into creating a more intentional life, check out the membership at mindlove.com slash membership. We have over a dozen masterclasses, over a hundred exclusive episodes just for MindLove members, and we have dozens of meditations. So go to mindlove.com slash membership. And all of my sponsors are at mindlove.com slash sponsors. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.